Hi, everyone. Welcome to Huddle Insights. I'm Mark Legere. And I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. Hi, guys. So we're here today to talk about uh, urban economic development. Um, so, David, let's start with you. What do we, what do we uh, mean by urban economic development? Well, f- fundamentally, we mean economic development or activities that lead to economic growth in our urban centers. And it's a particularly uh, timely issue in Atlantic Canada because we don't have very large urban centers. Halifax is the largest, and actually Halifax is starting to compete on a national basis. But for the most part, the urban centers are quite small in Atlantic Canada, and we need to figure out what's the best way to foster long-term economic growth uh, as drivers of overall provincial uh, GDP and population growth. When I was uh, listening to, you know, in particular, the the podcast conversation that you had with, um, you know, with Stephen Lund and then the conversation with the two of you before um, the Stephen Lund conversation, uh, a, a question that I had in my mind as I was listening to it is, I'm not sure that, you know, the broader public, it, you know, has a, a very good understanding of kind of the role of of the private sector and private sector companies in driving growth. And then the role of, of some of the, you know, the government agencies and, and then the nonprofits that are, you know, funded largely by, by government at the community level. What is the balance there between private sector and, and public sector in terms of, of uh, growing the economy? David? It's of interest. I've been in the economic development business now for over 25 years. And when you look across North America and you look around the world, urban centers have been the drivers of most new economic growth. The economy's moving more towards service industries and urban centers get the bulk of that growth. Now, we'll talk today as we go through this about that doesn't mean ignoring rural development. It just means that 70 to 80 percent of your growth opportunities moving forward are going to be in urban centers. And we, I think we have to think more about that in Atlantic Canada. But if you take a place like New Brunswick, where 50 percent of the population still lives in rural, the politics of it become more complicated. What are some of the of the current trends in, in economic development in, in communities across the region? Don? Well, you know, economic development has always been an interest of mine going back uh, a couple decades, honestly. Um, I was always trying to figure out why Atlantic Canada trailed the rest of the country in terms of economic development, but led it in unemployment. I was trying to figure out why is that, why is that the case? Um, in fact, I wrote a columnist, uh, you know, recently on uh, economic development performance in the region and asked the question, you know, what are we getting for our money? Um, I estimate, and I this is based on only a very quick look at the numbers that we're probably spending in Atlantic Canada from the federal, provincial, and municipal levels over a billion dollars a year, every year, on economic development, yet... If you look at the performance numbers in terms of at least GDP and job growth, I mean, we're underperforming. So you'd have to say that the economic development uh, performance uh, has been underwhelming in this region. So let me give you an example. Uh, if you go back to uh, 2000 and you look at uh, GDP, um, one of the things that's noteworthy for Atlantic Canada is that in 2020, we represented a little over 8% of the economy. In uh, the last year, we were closer to 6% of the economy. So we lost the 25% uh, we, uh, you know, uh, growth over that period. And so the Canadian economy has grown over 60% since 2000, 60%. Think about that number. And the number in Atlantic Canada, it's a little under 28%. So that's a big gap. So... How good is our economic development when we're when we're becoming a smaller part of the economy every year? And with the exception of PEI, as we've talked about in the past, we can't keep up with growth in the country. That's a big question. And uh, one of the things that my column identified, uh, using Nova Scotia only as an example, is that we have a we have a lot of players in economic development at the federal level. Of course, we have a co a co's budget. For the current year is $575 million. That's a lot of money. But there are other federal agencies playing in the game. We have the Export Development Corporation helping companies 
fine export markets. We have the agricultural agri-foods uh, Canada helping the agricultural industry. We have Destination um, Canada helping the tourism industry. So that's the federal level. That's a lot of people. And I've only counted the budget for ACOA in that. So there's a portion of those other uh, departments spending money here as well. And then if you look at the provincial level in Nova Scotia, the Department of Inclusive Economic Growth has a budget of $190 million. And it provides funding for a variety of other agencies, including Develop Nova Scotia, InnovaCore, um, in, in, uh, Invest Nova, uh, Nova Scotia, Tourism Nova Scotia, and Nova Scotia Business Inc. So that's the provincial level. And then we go one step further, and then we, what, what do we find? Well, there are there are regional enterprise networks, uh, seven of them across the province. Then we have the Cape Breton Partnership. We have the Nova Halifax Partnership. There are over 20 downtown development commissions. There are 13 community business development corporations. There's Discover Halifax. It's a lot. And it's too many. And they don't actually have a lot of accountability. There are some that do. We can talk about those examples. But most of them are, are really not accountable for outcomes. And so it's a, it's, a, it's a question that very few people want to ask, but we need to find out, you know, uh, why we're not getting better bang for a buck, spending a billion dollars a year on econo economic development in this region. So I guess that's why I'm interested. So what we're looking for is private sector growth. The issue is there's a public interest in that, and that's why governments spend money on economic development, because they're trying to do things that uh, will foster private sector economic growth, whether it's new startups or attracting companies or helping existing companies grow their business. So I think that's really what, uh, you know, the role of the public sector. We don't necessarily want to grow a larger public sector, although that is part of economic development. It does create economic activity. But fundamentally, I think Don would agree, what we're really trying to do is grow private sector investment, private sector job creation, private sector growth. And then the question becomes, what's the appropriate role for government? And I think Don is concerned that we're spending a lot of money. We have a lot of agencies, but we're not getting a lot of bang for that buck. And I'm happy to have that conversation today. Well, you know, there are some, there are some communities that are being more successful <clears throat> than others. And there, there tends to be some common elements to that success. So if you take a place like uh, let's let's look at Halifax as the biggest market, you know, uh, one of the things that it did a number of years ago, pre-amalgamation, by the way, is they they amalgamated all the economic development uh, departments of the four previous uh, municipalities into a single agency uh, with the responsibility, the full responsibility for economic development, and and they put a you know a largely private sector board in place as uh, as the group to uh, keep management to account uh, so that was uh, that was an important decision uh, made uh, uh, a long time ago uh, now in in Halifax and and then what the what the partnership has done and and has really done a lot of collaboration in building uh, this is to create a region-wide a region-wide economic strategy, not just for the urban areas, but for the suburban areas and the rural areas that comprise the Halifax Regional Municipality. And so they're taking into account all the assets within within Halifax. They're, they determine kind of where their focus should be, especially in certain sectors where they think that they can leverage those those uh, sectors and grow them. Um, and so uh, the next thing that I think is important about the example in Halifax is they put real metrics on it. And the metrics are, you know, they're, they, you know, even though they don't have full responsibility for them, they are, they are taking account of those metrics. One is population growth. Uh, they have a population growth for uh, Halifax of getting to 550,000 by 2031, I believe, and growing the economy by another $30 billion over the same time frame. So those are, those are big, those are big um, uh, goals. And, and by the way, it looks like they're on target. But without those goals and without being held accountable for at least some portion of that, 
you can't really measure uh, the success of an organization. And, uh, you know, I have to, you know, um, uh, acknowledge that I was part of the formation of the partnership way back when. And it was a battle to get it done at that, at that time. And, uh, but on the whole, I think it's a good model. It's a, a good model that I think we can use for other, what I would call economic hubs, because that's what Halifax is. Halifax is an economic hub that uh, serves uh, the market as far away as Bridgewater to the south, Kentville into the valley, uh, Truro and New Glasgow uh, into the central part of the, of the province. So we need to replicate the success of the Halifax uh, model, the partnership model at least, uh, in other urban communities. And that's the whole I think that that's probably, and there are others that are worth uh, talking about as well, but that's uh, that's the best one that I can see right now. But it reminds me of a story I heard one time. One of my former colleagues was in California with Francis McGuire, the former Deputy Minister of Economic Development and Tourism in New Brunswick. And apparently Francis said in his colorful language something to the <laughs> effect of who wouldn't want to do economic development in Silicon Valley? In other words, it's just on autopilot, and all you have to do is make sure you have nice, pretty brochures, and you, you know, you're promoting yourself. Where, and I think there's a little of that going on in Halifax, Don, in the sense that a lot of good policies around development and so on, around the post-secondary education system and so on, were put in place that are driving a lot of that growth in Halifax. And I'm not sure the Halifax Partnership can take responsibility for that. Now, what it can take responsibility for. It's creating a very positive tone for business, promoting the community very well, and working on very specific initiatives that have been successful. But I guess, so in terms of a model, I agree with you. I love the Halifax partnership model, but we have to be a little careful to differentiate between activities that actually drive growth and, you know, sort of just monitoring and tracking and having metrics around the kind of growth we want to see. And the former is harder, the latter is easier. So I agree with you 100%, Halifax Partnership, great model. But there's a lot of things going on there. And in the conversation with Stephen Lund, he said, for example, that NSBI, in his mind, was far more influential to Halifax's growth than the partnership. Now, I'm not going to get into a big debate about the partnership versus NSBI. But I think, as I say, there's a whole ecosystem of players. There's policies that the city put in place and so on. Uh, there's a mix of things. And if we're looking at the Halifax model, I think it has to be more than just the Halifax partnership. I, I agree. I, I agree. And, and, and let me tell you, there was a competition between NSBI and, and the partnership when I was on the board. It was almost like they were battling to see who would you know, get the most recognition, which really negates what their purpose was in the beginning. Uh, which was to create economic uh, success. Um, and, you know, this is one of the problems that we have, uh, David. You know, we have so many organizations doing, you know, a variety of things to create economic development uh, without a lot of coordination and, and with a fair amount of competition, uh, needless competition. And so, uh, you know, this is one of the challenges that we have in this region. But I just want to take one more uh, point uh, no doubt that Halifax has a lot of assets. You know, they've got the military. They're an education center with four universities or five, depending on how you count. Um, they've got, uh, you know, big regional hospitals serving, you know, all of Atlantic Canada, the financial center, it, no question. But uh, let's, let's flip it over to Charlottetown, which is a very different place. It doesn't have all those assets, but it does have what I would call critical mass and population. Why is that important? Well, you know, to grow an economy, you have to have a certain level of manpower labor force available. And, and, and Charlottetown has that. Um, but uh, it's probably grown faster than Halifax over the last 10 years, certainly from a population point of view. Um, PEI over the last 10 years has outperformed the country in GDP growth. Much of that is related to what's going on in Charlottetown. Um, they do have a strategy uh, for economic development that has been in place for some time. Um, they do have a downtown uh, uh, 
sort of plan focused on densification, which I think is a really important part of every urban community to be successful. And, and any, any urban community that's on the water, which includes where you live, David, in Moncton, <laughs> has to take advantage of being near the water. And, and by the way, I've seen plans for the city of Moncton that has the waterfront as incorporated into the future downtown. I think it's, you know, that's, that's great. That's what's necessary. So, uh, but, you know, even the smallest communities, if you look at um, Bathurst, for instance, uh, what do they have that's in common to the larger uh, communities? They have critical mass in terms of population. They have post-secondary institutions, which I think is, is key. Um, they have regional uh, health facilities. They are a center for retail and shopping and entertainment, uh, they have not all the elements, but some of the key elements that can drive their success. But what they tend to be missing is a is kind of that overall uh, growth strategy focused on their assets that 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 they can leverage. So just to get back to Charlton, because I think this is, and you've talked to Rory before, but the Bio Alliance is an example of a cluster strategy that has been tremendously successful. Rory uh, Francis was involved in the beginning of that, is now the CEO of the B, um, Bio Alliance. And, you know, today they started, I think, in 2005. Today they have 2,000 people working in that sector in mostly Charlottetown, like 2,000 people in Charlottetown, folks. You know, that's a lot, right, over a short period of time. And they're not, they're high paying jobs. Not only that, but they're jobs that are attracting. Uh, immigrants uh, to that province because of those high paying jobs. Charlottetown. So, you know, if Charlottetown can do it, other communities uh, can do it as well, but they have to have a strategy to start with. What kind of, uh, what kind of industries and, and companies would that, would that involve? Well, it's, uh, it, it's uh, pharmaceuticals, I think, uh, veterinary uh, uh, products. Um, uh, they've got a couple of companies over there that are, um, that are big in those areas. And uh, then, you know, they're, they're drawing others uh, to, to mostly Charlottetown, although they're starting to expand around the province. And, and, but again, it's, uh, the thing is that they've, they've identified uh, a cluster that they can grow. And there's not very many communities that they don't have that same opportunity. But it's an important point because economic developers use a, a technical term called a location quotient. And all that is, is it looks at your employment by industry compared to the national average to see where you have a higher concentration of employment. And that are, then the argument is you're strong there and that's something you need to work on. So Halifax has a very high LQ for education, for example, and a number of other sectors. Charlottetown has a very high LQ for bioscience, if you look at pharmaceutical, medical uh, devices, things like that. And so that's the problem with Bathurst, is when you look at the LQ values for Bathurst, it's hospitals, public sector. And so one of the challenges for a place like Bathurst, and I would say most of the urban centers in Atlanta, Canada, is to think about what are the opportunities for private sector, where are the areas where we can build up a strength and a cluster because the biosciences cluster in PEI was almost non-existent 15 years ago. Uh, and they deliberately, as you said, they built this intermediary group called the Bio Alliance, uh, and they actually built out, deliberately built out a cluster around the Atlantic uh, Veterinary College, around the NRC Center for Nutraceuticals and so on. So that's when we think about Bathurst or any urban center in across Atlantic Canada is what are those core private sector industries that have potential for growth, and what is the role, if any, in, for the public sector to try and help uh, uh, nurture those sectors along? There's one other thing I wanted to mention that's really important to, to the uh, urban strategies. <clears throat> if you don't have a population growth component of that strategy, you're not really uh, you're not really uh, responding to the labor issues that are coming as we all know, as the population ages. Um, I just did a series of tweets about uh, all the urban areas in Atlantic Canada, and, that, you know, there's a lot that continue to shrink. Um, and they, sh they shrank in the 2016 census. This is census month in Canada again. We're going to find out what the numbers are over the last five years. But up, up 
to last year, there's a, a number of them. And, and as an example of the four cities in New Brunswick, three of them got smaller over since uh, 2016. Well, that's not a recipe for success. And, uh, you know, they have a challenge uh, attracting immigrants to those smaller communities, but they have to figure out a way to do that. And, uh, you know, there are, I think there are things that communities can do, but if they don't talk about it, if they don't put together a plan, it's not going to happen on its own. It's not going to happen organically. You actually have to be proactive. If you want to grow your, your population and, and any community of, of size. And uh, again, the, sort of the threshold is 5,000 or more to c- count in stats Canada terms as urban. If you're in that category, and you're losing population, you have to focus on what you can do to turn that around because eventually you're going to become, you're going to become a, a retirement uh, community only and a declining retirement community. Yeah. And I mean, this is the, where we are, our conversation will start to sort of uh, bleed back into the your earlier podcast focused on immigration and population growth. But um, I'd be interested to know from you guys, because it feels like obviously you know, we wanted to uh, arrest population decline in our communities and in, in, in the Atlantic provinces. But it feels like um, as a strategy uh, at the community level, it's a relatively new thing, isn't it? Like in the last several years? It's very new, right? When I started in the 90s, we had a perceived and I think we actually did have a surplus of labor. We were graduating more people out of our high schools and colleges and universities than the market demanded and many of them were leaving. And now you're into a situation where a lot of them are still leaving because they see their career potential as, as uh, outside the province. Uh, and that just exacerbates this lack of a talent pipeline here in the region. So we absolutely are seeing uh, a, a change there that we have to focus on and we have to treat people attraction the way we used to treat business attraction. It's a very strategic thing and it's good to see you know, New Brunswick in particular is is putting a lot of focus on that. ONB is ramping up its capabilities in that area. Uh, but at the end of the day, that is going to be every bit as important as trying to attract business investment because the two run hand in hand. You need capital and you need people to grow a business. And if you don't, if you have lots of capital and no people, it's not going to happen. If you have lots of people and no capital, it's not going to happen. And right now, most of the uh, region is is struggling to address the the, the talent side of things. You know, Jim Irving, uh, I think, put it really well. You know, they have a, at least a three-phase uh, uh, manpower strategy. One is to keep them here, you know, which is talking about young graduates and keeping our young people here. One is to get them here uh, in terms of um, uh, immigrants and, 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 and keep them. And then the, the third one is to repatriate uh, people who want to come home. So it's not a single focus in terms of labor. You have to have all those things uh, working. Now, the good news is that the most recent data suggests that all those things are starting to work, at least in the Maritimes. In Newfoundland and Labrador, they're not working. They're in trouble, serious trouble. And, um, you know, I'm not sure how they're going to get at it. We're going to probably talk about that in a future podcast in some detail, but uh, it's a big problem for them. Yeah, I've been talking to the IT industry uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador, and they are facing severe shortages and looking at an immigration strategy, particularly around uh, information technology professionals and trying to leverage Memorial University. But I want to make one quick point about that, if I can, Mark, because I got a number of emails about this after the Irving interview. Let's be clear about one thing. Immigrants are going to make up all net growth in the labor force moving forward, but not all growth. So that's a huge distinction that people don't seem to understand. There's, let's say, every year about 7,000 people are retiring from the New Brunswick workforce. To replace those 7,000, still about 5,000 are coming from local people. 2,000 are going to come from immigrants, or 3,000 are going to come from immigrants, which is the net above the seven. So it's not as if there's only immigrants joining the workforce. There's still thousands and thousands of Atlantic Canadians every year, young Atlantic Canadians going into the workforce. It's just that there's not enough of them to make up for the losses from people retiring and, and, and for the need to actually grow the workforce. So that's an important distinction because some people are now under the impression that it's only immigrants joining the workforce, and that's just not the case. Why do you think people are left with that impression? It's all we talk about, and it's for good reason. 
but we just need to be clear because I've I've said in my my writing and my discussions, my presentations, that immigrants are going to make up all net growth in the labor force because they are across Canada. Across Canada, since 2013, the born in Canada workforce has shrunk slightly. The uh, number of immigrants in the workforce has grown by almost a million. So, but that doesn't mean no young Canadians are joining the workforce. It just means that there's not enough to replace those that are leaving the workforce. So I think that's an important distinction that sometimes people like me that I, I swim in data, I'm not clear enough with people that we're not talking about immigrants filling every single empty job in the workforce. We're saying we're going to need them for 20% or 30% uh, of the job opportunities moving forward, which is still a big number considering that, you know, 10 years ago they were filling 1% uh, of the jobs. One of the things that, that came through strong in, in both the Lund interview for me and also the, uh, the Jim Irving interview is, is kind of the marrying of economic opportunity with, with population growth. So with, with immigration or with young people that are in the workforce. And, you know, it struck me that obviously it's a huge part of Irving's success, success around having such a high retention rate um, for immigrants uh, what does that look like in some of the, you've met, you've talked about uh, PEI and Charlottetown, talked about Halifax. Um, what is that kind of marrying of oper- economic opportunity and, and the people who, you know, will seek those opportunities, whether the people are already here or people that are moving in, in cities like uh, St. John, you know, Fredericton, uh, Moncton, St. John's, Newfoundland. Like I know we're talking about very different communities, obviously. Um, I, I think, David, is the term you use location Quotient, is that it? Yeah, location quotient. Yeah. Sorry to get technical. No, I like that though. I like it. I just <laughs> want to make sure I remembered it right. Like, what does that look like in communities like Moncton, St. John, Fredericton? So Moncton has a very high LQ around business support centers. So if you think of TD, RBC, Exxon, uh, you know, uh, the hotel back offices and so on. So very high, seven times the national average. So that's an industry that has to be protected. Uh, St. John has a good LQ around IT and, of course, for, forest products. And, and the biggest LQ of all is in uh, uh, oil refining. St. John's is still very, very dominant. Uh, offshore oil and gas is a huge industry over there. But as a capital city, it has a very high LQ values in the public sector and in education as well. So all these cities, I think the secondary cities are more problematic. They used to have pulp mills. They used to have larger primary industries, and many of them don't have that. Like Miramichi doesn't have as much of that anymore. Uh, but I, I do think the larger city, Fredericton, Fredericton is going to be okay, right? doesn't matter as long as they can po- get the people because they have public sector and a very large education sector. Uh, so they are pretty well recession-proof, even more so, I think, than Halifax. If you look historically at when the recessions come, Fredericton more or less does fine. Um, but I think that's... Uh, I think that's a sort of a good summary of that. And those secondary cities, I think, need to look at those private industries that have potential to drive private sector growth and build up the location quotient values in the private sector. But I want to say quickly on Charlottetown, because Don didn't mention it, they, they one of the big things that they did was attract hundreds of immigrant entrepreneurs. And I know they even had a problem with their program. They had to suspend it. There was some shenanigans or some controversy there. But enough of those entrepreneurs stuck and bought up local businesses and started local businesses, invested 70, 80 million dollars into the island economy over a decade. And I think that's an underreported. Well, maybe if we get Wade uh, McLaughlin, Don on this podcast at some point, we'll ask him about that, because I think that's underreported in terms of the just the infusion of new entrepreneurial activity into PEI, we tend to focus in the other provinces more on workers for industries like fish processing and so on. They, at least early on, put a ton of effort into attracting immigrant entrepreneurs. So I think that's an underreported story, but an important one, particularly for Charlottetown. I think uh, another uh, part of that, David, is that <clears throat> there's going to be, a, an, or in the middle of it, a big uh, transition of businesses in this region, in this country, because of the aging entrepreneurs uh, like me uh, who are looking to have a succession plan in place. Um, I did a column on this uh, last year, I think it was. I I don't remember the number offhand, but I think it's in the range of 20,000 to 25,000 businesses likely to transfer over the next uh, decade or so. And there's not enough buyers in this region for those businesses. And so 
there's a real opportunity to open up uh, for immigrant uh, investors uh, who want to come here and buy a business and get you know into the economy right away. I think it's a big opportunity. And as you know, there's a lot of money floating around the world looking for places to invest. So that would be, I think that would be a good thing for this region. So we need to get Mark to reel us back in and get us back on topic, but it is a very good point (laughs) because I do, I I, I do worry that there's also this nationalization of some of these industries. In other words, consolidation of all the doctor's office or dentist's office and, and, and funeral homes and insurance brokers, but we'll do a whole other podcast on that in terms of, how do we ensure a robust and dynamic local entrepreneurial markets at some point in the future, Mark? Yeah, no, and looking for me to, to rein us in from tangents, David, you're looking at the wrong person. Because uh, it, <laughs> it, it got me to thinking, uh, and something, uh, David, if you have some insights on, because I think we had done some reporting on it in the last couple of years, is it, it felt like there were certain communities, and Fredericton jumps to mind, of actively taking a look at... Uh, succession plans for local companies and in particular um, identifying uh, immig- potential you know immigrant entrepreneurs that could take over you know family businesses that have been long held uh, you know for generations and families I'm thinking smaller businesses they're getting better at that the problem is it's these are smaller communities relatively small communities and a lot of the entrepreneurs don't want to let it known that they're for sale they figure it'll reduce their selling price or their value. So what I've said is this needs to be more of a hush-hush, like the accountants, the Grant Thorntons and the accountants around and the business brokers need to play a much more active role and get out there and be more, because I don't know that, you know, all these businesses, say, in Fredericton are going to run to the Economic Development Agency and say, hey, I'm for sale, I'm for sale, because they're worried about, you know, whether or not that'll affect the value, right, if, if a potential buyer thinks they're desperate to sell. So... There's more of that going on now, but I think that that should be more kind of uh, in the background with the accountants, the network of accountants and business brokers and others. But it's a huge issue. Don's absolutely right. The role for government there is to go out and try to find a roster of potential immigrant entrepreneurs that might be interested in bring those to town and do some matchmaking and things like that. Well, you know, I had the experience of selling my business uh, recently, and I can tell you that uh, most of the large accounting uh, firms have a have a, an M and A practice for people looking for businesses. That's how I recently ended up buying another business with my brother and my son. I went, we went to, we used Grant Thornton. We were looking for businesses of certain type, certain size. They introduced us to the business that we eventually bought. So actually, I think it could be a lot more streamlined than you might think. If so, if you had uh, a bunch of uh, you know immigrants looking for businesses, they would just have to be put in touch with the people who are out there promoting clients confidentially. Uh, you know, we had to send a sign a, a confidentiality agreement before we got any information from even who the company was. So, I mean, it, people can be protected. They just have to know that there's a lot of businesses that are out there for sale, mainly through uh, brokers or through. Um, major accounting firms and uh they just have to be matched uh up i think as david mentioned so we should probably just spend a bit of time however on the real topic <laughs> of this podcast which is uh, urban economic development and uh, uh i think we should spend a bit of time on uh, economic hubs and when when you say economic hubs uh don tell us what you mean by that well it's it's it, it's kind of building on uh what makes urban um, communities more successful than non-urban. And um, I know one thing for sure is that as I studied Atlantic Canada, our, our larger cities, and they're not that large on the national scale, but if you take a look at Moncton and Fredericton and Charlottetown and Halifax and St. John's, they're fine. They're going to be, they, they perform almost at the national level. There's nothing you know, unique about them. They're typical Canadian cities. And um, so if you, if you, if you think about what urban centers provide, they, what they provide services, entertainment, employment for people living not only in that community, but people who are living within a reasonable commute. Again, using Halifax, and we could use any other city. We could use Fredericton. We could use Moncton. We could use Charlottetown. People are traveling in every day from a 
100 kilometers or more, an hour or more. It's kind of like Toronto. Uh, the other side of Truro coming into Halifax, or the, you know, the valley, Kentville coming into Halifax every day to work. But they get the benefit of living in a smaller community. And they have the, the advantage of both a rural, more rural lifestyle with the urban amenities nearby. So uh, the whole idea about economic hubs is to concentrate on the urban areas of Atlantic Canada and the economic zones around them. So it might mean, you know, some consolidation of delivery of services like healthcare, as an example. Uh, in Nova Scotia, we simply have too many hospitals. I think the same thing is certainly true for New Brunswick, a uh, little less so in uh, in Newfoundland, and and probably the numbers about right in, in PEI. But we could consolidate some uh, some more rural hospitals, convert them to another use, like long term care, for instance, so they don't lose the jobs in those communities. Uh, I forget the number offhand, but I, I think the number is you know you know, 30 emergency centers in Nova Scotia for a population of a million people. There are eight communities that serve 95% of the population within a 40 minute uh, drive. You know, so how many, how many emergency rooms do you need uh, if you have a good ambulance service to get people there? So those are hard questions because, you know, people don't want to lose their facilities in their community. So let me give you an example that my friends in Lunenburg hate me for saying, but I'll say it anyway. So the Fisherman's Memorial Hospital in Lunenburg, uh, they have a lot of trouble keeping their emergency room open. You never know if it's open or closed. Uh, they have trouble getting staff there, keeping staff there. And it's turned into really a long-term care facility for the beds that they have. So it's not it's a, kind of a hospital, but not really. It's kind of an emergency center, but not really. 20 minutes away, 20 minutes away, there's a big regional hospital in Bridgewater that has most of the major services there, you know, within a 20-minute, uh, you know, ambulance ride. I always say to my friends, I said, listen, if you're having a heart attack and you live in Lunenburg, you get in the ambulance, where do you want them to take you? <laughs> you want to take them to the Fisherman's Memorial where they probably don't have a cardiologist? Or do you want to... You want to go to at least Bridgewater where they're likely to have, uh, you know, that service. Those are the kinds of things that we need to do. Now, I don't think that Lunenburg should lose the facility, but they, they might uh, change. Instead of having a, an emergency room, they might have a collaborative health center uh, that operates as a, a kind of a walk-in clinic uh, during daytime hours to provide those services that, you know, that are needed plus turn the rest of the hospital into a long care facility because they need long-term facility beds anyway in that region. So you wouldn't lose the job so much, but you would consolidate the delivery of the emergency services to a nearby regional hospital. And by the way, uh, the McNeil government made a pretty big decision while he was in office of closing two hospitals in Cape Breton. Very brave thing to do. And what did he do? He replaced them with a expanded emergency service at the remaining two hospitals. He created in the in the in the two areas, I think it was New Waterford and North Sydney, two collaborative health centers for you know access to primary care uh, uh, during the day. That model, I think, is a model that the whole region has to take a look at—a a new way of delivering services. So that's just one side. Uh, of economic hubs. It's a way of delivering better, more comprehensive services within a reasonable commute of where people live. And, and a lot of people who, who have heard this, this strategy that I've been promoting for a long time, they say, oh, well, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt rural communities. No, it's not. What it does is it allows people to remain living in rural communities if they have successful economic uh, urban areas nearby that they can access for full-time work for, for services that might other, otherwise not be in that region. So it's not a question of moving people out of the world. It's a question of using those urban hubs as a way to uh, grow the economy in that region, grow the population in that region, not by taking people from rural and moving them to uh, urbans, but by bringing in people from elsewhere to grow the economies in those, in those areas. And as I, as I said, 
if you look at, there's seven in uh, New Brunswick that uh, I think uh, reached 90% of the population within about a 40-minute drive. Nova Scotia, it's eight for 90, almost 95. Well, in PEI, there's, there's two that serves the, the whole province anyway already. Newfoundland, they have 10. They have 10. And uh, same thing, they, they serve about 90% of the people. So, you know, this is a whole thing about economic development. And we have to think about uh, regions rather than, you know, um, um, how we do it right now is based on county lines. Like, you know, and uh, the economic hubs are really about urban areas and the markets that they serve already. It's already happening. Now all we have to do is make it happen at a higher level. So I tend to agree with Don, but I might quibble a little bit because I think for me it's an issue of scale. So if you want a Costco in a community, you're only going to have one, and it's got to service an area of 100,000 people. Uh, if you want to have a bowling alley, you've got to have a certain size. If you want a movie theater, if you want to have a, a, you know, a podiatrist, you've got to have uh, some critical mass to support specialized services. If you want a patent lawyer, I think we only have one or two in all of Atlanta, Canada. That's going to be in Halifax. So you've got to have scale to have these services. And the idea is that you want to, you want to drive that scale. You don't in healthcare too. You don't want to have all this stuff distributed. So everybody gets a little bit, nobody gets high quality. But my, where I quibble a bit with Don is that if you have demand for uh, pockets of service in rural areas uh, and there's market demand for it, I don't see why a person has to be why, why we should be encouraging the centralization of that service. So I'll give you an example. My, Parents now go to a doc, no, they go to a dentist in Doketown. And they used to have to go either to Fredericton or Miramichi for their dentist, but the dentist now comes to them. And why? Because there's a market for it. The dentist has seen a market, a, a, an addressable market, a financial market to do that. And so instead of 300 old people driving into Miramichi and nearly killing everybody on the way, the dentist actually comes out to them. So it's much more efficient. You know, it's better for everybody involved, and the dentist makes good money doing it. So I'm just saying, Don, I agree with you 100% in terms of the growth poles, the urban hubs. That's where the growth is going to occur. We need to consolidate where it makes sense, uh, services in the urban hubs. But when there's a demand for a service in Chipman or Minto or Truro or, you know, Wolfville, then I think the we don't want to drive everybody into the urban hub for those services if there's enough market demand for those but in general, I think the, the principle of urban hubs is absolutely a, a critical one. Uh, now, to your point, I'm not saying uh, not do rural economic development. In fact, next week, we have a really interesting conversation with one of the biggest proponents of rural economic development in the region, John Bragg. And he makes a lot of really good points about what is needed to help smaller communities like Oxford, where his business is located, uh, not only survive, but thrive. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, you just mentioned a dentist who's an entrepreneur, obviously. He saw a market opportunity, went to that market, and, and he's serving that opportunity. Well, that is the basis for economic growth in this region to begin with. And you, you mentioned it earlier, David. People are under the mistaken impression that government is, is, the, is the organization that is growing the economy. That's not true. No, it's not true. It's it's a private sector that that creates prosperity for any region, and it's the government that redistributes some of that prosperity for fairness and equal equality. That's the way it works. And people who believe that you know the government takes credit for growing the economy, no, they don't. They the only thing they can do is put the conditions in to encourage private sector to invest in a region. And that what 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 does that mean? That means you know reasonable regulation you know, a competitive tax regime and, and you know, and, and an environment which you can actually get decision making so you can carry on, get your business done in a timely fashion. That's it. That's as simple as it gets. And so that's what private sector is looking for the government to do is to, is to not make it, you know, too easy, but to make it easy enough that it's, it, it's, it's, it's an attractive place to invest your money. And, and we have some examples where that works really well in Atlantic Canada and some examples where it doesn't work well at all. And so, uh, you know, we need to just keep that in mind. So, uh, you know, I, I think the whole idea of we're not saying disadvantage any particular group here. 
but we're, we're what we're saying is take advantage of the strengths of uh, of where economic growth are most likely to occur. And as Davis mentioned, most likely to occur in eighty percent or plus of the of the time in urban areas. So let's concentrate our efforts on building those uh, those economic drivers uh, for regions uh, uh, around uh, Atlantic Canada. And I think that we will we're more likely to have some success doing that. In your mind, and for you know, question for both of you, where where are the success stories in terms of being able to build that economic hub that gets community that gets community buy-in? Because obviously, this is this is a huge issue. I mean, you, Don, you touched on on the healthcare issue and the delivery of health services. David, we we've gone through that here in New Brunswick in a big way in the last couple of years. Those debates, but we still seem to struggle with everybody being able to see that that bigger picture. So it throws up roadblocks to, to building hubs that both involve, you know, the economy uh, and where people live, but it also involves the delivery of services. I would say, first of, all, first of all, let me just jump in quickly and say that it's already happening naturally in most of these urban centers. It, it, they're already acting as an economic hub because people are going there from outside for shopping, retail, you know, services, entertainment, and jobs. It's already happening. So it's not a question of do we have to start something new? No, we have to focus a light on it and and elevate uh, the activities on a more strategic basis. So not just letting it happen naturally, but um, proactively figuring out how we can accelerate the pace of growth in those urban centers without disadvantaging nearby rural communities. I think one of the problems, and I hope as we go through this podcast over the next weeks and months, we talk about it more, because I think one of the problems is, Don talked about the billion dollars spent earlier, there's basically two types of economic development. The one type is you set up a big bureaucracy in federal, provincial, you get a pile of money and you distribute that money directly to companies to try and stimulate them to invest. So that's startups, that's firms to expand, that's firms to grow, firms to come into the region. So it's a cash transfer system. It's an incentive system. And all of the governments do it. I have no problem with it in theory. But the other kind of economic development is where you actually look at what your assets are and think about how we grow them. And that's the PEI BioAlliance model. But it could also be maple syrup in Albert County, or it could be uh, aquaculture off the coast of uh, the Bay of Fundy in, in uh, Nova Scotia or whatever. So that kind of economic development where you're actually looking at what your assets and attributes are and figuring out how industry and government can collaborate to try and grow an actual new opportunity is hard. It's easier for governments to come in and say, here's a check to all of the existing firms in the community, but that doesn't necessarily grow the economy. It could. Uh, we've seen some successes in that, but I, I think that maybe the balance is skewed and I'd appreciate Don's feedback on that. I think we're spending a little bit too much of our focus on injecting cash into firms and not as much of those, that billion dollars into actually saying, where's the next biosciences cluster? or Where's the next forest products cluster? or where's the, what, what can we do with agri-food or what can we do with offshore development? And I think that's, as we go through this podcast, for me, that's an overarching theme is what is the role of government? Is it just primarily, and I'm not saying they're not doing the other stuff, but I would say most of these agencies spend about 80% of their time managing programs that are meant to pump money into companies to get them to export more or get them to do specific things. Now the productivity is the big thing, right? We're trying to get companies to be more productive. So what do governments do? They pump more money into companies to get them to be more productive. And I'm saying that's one side of it. The other side is how you actually grow and what's the appropriate role for government to help grow specific clusters of activity. And I don't know that we're spending enough effort on that. I would also add that, you know, I had a bit, I had a contact center business for a long time <clears throat> and I was always frustrated by the fact that I was competing against my own tax dollars because other contact centers were being attracted to Nova Scotia and getting the benefit of that uh, public money. And I never once asked for any money to build the business. Uh, and by the way, it, uh, by the time I sold my interest in that business, it had 600 employees. So it wasn't that small. And we did it basically on our own dime. Uh, but it was really frustrating at the time uh, to have our competitors 
subsidized by our tax dollars. It was kind of, you know, so the, the practice of picking winners and losers has always been a, a complaint about uh, government's in, intervention into to the economy. Now, compare that to uh, the more recent programs where they say, we'll give you a payroll rebate if you create a certain number of new jobs. That's much more measurable. And I actually think that that's, a, you can give that to anybody. You, you, that could be a program for anybody. It doesn't have to be from somebody coming from somewhere else. It could be somebody local. And if you want to create incentive to, to create jobs, that's one way. I, I advocated for a long time for payroll uh, subsidies for new graduates when new graduates were having troubles. Now, uh, New Brunswick created one, Nova Scotia did, and I think the other provinces did as well. I always said that it was always, it was more important for a new graduate to get the first job than anything else. If you wanted them to stay in a region, get them their first job and help them get their first job. And uh, it, that's not as neat as, as it was 10 years ago. And 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 frankly, it's uh, it, it, you know it's been a good program. A lot of people are using. It. So there are some good uses of money, but they have to be fair and across the board. They can't cherry pick who's getting it and who's not. Yeah, and I do know, like just speaking from our own point of view, uh, you know, at Huddle, like we've certainly taken advantage of some of those programs, and especially with the with with students and being able to give them those job ready experiences and. It, it is valuable, right? It's there. I can, I can point to unquestionable value in it. But I don't, like I said, I don't disagree with that. But my bigger interest would be how do you create a cluster of media companies in St. John? Is there the potential with you look at Hemmings House and Huddle and the, and the, and the Brunswick News and these others? Is there, is there the opportunity to do more content production in St. John? And maybe there's zero. I just don't think we're putting enough effort into trying to identify what those opportunities could be. And it's not, you know, again, I've never been like, it's not about, I'm not saying you pour massive subsidies to grow a specific sector like we used to do in the 70s with pharmaceuticals, let's say in Montreal. But what I am saying is if you've got nuggets of opportunity around your jurisdiction and you're not trying to work on that, you're just pumping, you know, your whole focus is pumping money into firms. I, I think that's a mistake. And I think we can talk about that more as we go, as we go through, but I do think, you know, even in the huddle example, right? Huddle was an innovative new company in the media business and we've got podcasts and we've got some other little, uh, interesting little green shoots and nobody's saying, how do we tie that together? And in fact, I've actually talked about it in New Brunswick and I've been shut down. No, nobody will ever do content here. Well, you've got content shops in Winnipeg that do national content for CBC and other, other media. You've got global news content shops. So why couldn't we be producing more original media in a place like St. John? And I just don't think we do enough thinking about that because we're too busy pumping money into firms. But I could be wrong. Right. Do you, do you, do you think there's a is there a shift happening uh, on that level, David and Don, in terms of, of focusing more on strategic clusters and and supporting growth generally in the right places as opposed to pumping money into companies? Everybody likes the big shiny object. So cannabis, cybersecurity, you know, everybody wants to pick a big one and go after it. And I think that's fine if there's an opportunity there. But we have, you know, New Brunswick in particular has uh, a bilingual province. We graduate dozens of kids with uh, translation skills, and we've never really tried to turn that into any kind of cluster of activity. So now New Brunswick imports about a million dollars a year of language translation so we have to send out almost a million dollars worth of documents to be translated outside the province because we don't have enough capacity in the province to do it. So explain that to me. So all I'm saying is we don't do enough in this region to think about where are those areas of growth. And we have great examples. If you think about shellfish aquaculture on PEI, you know, there's, a, there's examples. But I just think we could be far more deliberate about that all across the four provinces. In fact, you know, we're, we, we want to... In future uh, podcasts, we, we plan to talk about clusters and some of the ones uh, that are successful and perhaps, you know, think about some other opportunities. But, you know, clearly it's a not, it, it's worked in a couple of areas very well. So we need to learn from that and uh, recreate that opportunity in other other communities. And, um, you know, I'm sure in, in future podcasts, it'd be, it'd be great for us to be able to just take take individual communities and really, really dig into them. Um, to have a look at the the successes and and you know and some of the shortcomings, right? Exactly. I think that's right. I think Bridgewater would be an interesting example. One of the 
if you look at Nova Scotia, and Don knows Nova Scotia much better than I do, but almost all of the growth is within a stone's throw of Halifax, like Truro and these places, even down in the valley. But some of the communities are starting to get out there. Bridgewater is reasonably close to Halifax too, but it would be interesting to see how places like Cape Breton, uh, you know, Amherst, uh, and, you know, and Yarmouth, for example, is one of Don's far-flung urban hubs, what their strategies are and how they're trying to grow their economies. Because if you look at Nova Scotia right now, it's almost like it's just emanating out of Halifax if you look at how the economy is growing. Well, guys, um, we probably shouldn't wrap this one up because I think we could actually probably keep going for another couple hours on this, eh? <laughs> it's a big it's a big topic and you know the the thing that I, we we want uh, listeners to begin thinking about is uh, how we're going about the whole issue of economic development in this region you know we haven't questioned it for a long time uh, we need to think about new ways of doing things to take advantage of what the trends are worldwide in terms of economic growth and and realize that you know that's what's going to happen here uh, as well we have to uh we have to plan and strategize around that. So uh, this is uh, hopefully uh, going to open up a bigger uh, conversation. I know, uh, uh, David, uh, right now that there's a big uh, municipal reform uh, thing happening in New Brunswick that uh, may lead, you know, down this road a little bit. I, you know, certainly have a lot of municipal units in, in New Brunswick. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the last point I would make today is that I do think that spending, that billion dollars and the 600 or 700 people that are attached to that, that are paid by government to do economic development, I think that's top heavy. It's federal, provincial. If you look at just in general, local government spends about 6% uh, of all government spending. If you look at GDP, it's about the same. And if you look at local government spending, actual money spent by local government on economic development, it usually only runs around 1% to 2% of municipal budgets. And so I still think that, and Halifax is doing great, Moncton's doing great, you know, there's lots of good models there. But I think municipalities all across Atlantic Canada need to be thinking, are they properly investing in economic development? And by the way, I don't want local government to set up another cash for companies business, uh, business, but they should be looking at what those assets are in their own community and how do we grow those assets and people attraction and all the pieces that we've been talking about. So I'd love to see more of that billion, the spending be a bit more distributed and have more local, you know, I was saying the other day, like when Plaster Rock, when the premier wants to know what's going on in Plaster Rock to grow the economy, somebody should have that answer. And right now, I don't think there's an answer to that question. I'm not sure anybody knows where Plaster Rock is, but let me just add to that comment because this, I believe this as well, that uh, the decision-making needs to be uh, decentralized when it comes to economic development, I think. Um, And the people living in Miramichi or Summerside or Gander or Bridgewater know much more about the market in which they live than somebody in Halifax or St. John's or Ottawa. Uh, I I, I believe that if we set up economic development agencies to look at these economic zones, uh, have them report to an independent, uh, mostly private sector board with uh, metrics and performance measures, and we give them a budget that they themselves decide on how to spend, we will go much further in terms of being successful than the current model. I'm convinced of that. And that's something that we really uh, we should uh, promote. It, it feels like it's just a, there's a, a shift taking place in, in terms of we, we all know there's been a shift towards, you know, the power of cities, whether you're talking about a big city like Toronto or a small city like St. John. And there's there's a growing recognition that more planning needs to happen at at those levels. Is it You know, in, in closing, it sounds from talking to both you guys, it sounds like uh, the shift in, in resources into those communities hasn't happened to properly do that work. I would say that that's true, uh, although we do have some very good uh, success models in this region that other communities can uh, build on. And then, you know, that's one of the messages that we want to get out, that you don't have to go far to find, uh, you know, uh, examples of success and, and to be able to replicate them in your community. Uh, but it also takes a recognition that uh, each of these communities need to take control of their future. Any closing uh, thoughts from you, David? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think I think you know there's there's there is the issue of scale. So 
we've got we've got to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. We do want to have regional uh, and even provincial focus. I don't want every small community in New Brunswick out doing investment attraction globally. They could never do it. They could never mount the appropriate team. So you need to have that done at a provincial level. But identifying the opportunities for tourism opportunities, for other industry, agriculture opportunities, mining projects, forest products development, all of that stuff should be led very much so by the local uh, local communities. So I think I, I agree with Don on that. And it's certainly a subject we will continue to discuss as we uh, uh, have these weekly discussions around economic development. All right. Well, it was great chatting with you guys today. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to the latest episode of Insights on the Huddle Podcast Network, hosted by Don Mills and David Campbell. Mark Legere and Sharice Letson helped produce this episode. You can subscribe by searching for Huddle Insights on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And we care about what you think, so please give the show a rating and a review. Don and David will be back again with another episode next week.